On this dynamic episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1983 in issues 71 and 72. Mike and Kylie Jones consider Carrie Fisher and her portrayal of Princess Leia in Return of the Jedi. Lee Ramsey and Josh Phillips bid farewell to Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Plus, the television shows of 1983. And more on this episode of... Star Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey my little Georgia Peach. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog Magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, And look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Sinbad and the Eye of Monsterama. This is an incredible classic science fiction and horror convention that's in Atlanta, Georgia. It returns Halloween weekend. Cutie Pie, will we be there? Oh, yeah, you bet. Who are some of the guests that are... Scheduled to appear. They've got Patrick Wayne, Carolyn Monroe, Steve Coulter, Linda Miller, Trina Parks, Pauline Part, and more. Love the fact that it has a spectrum of those that are involved in horror and sci-fi. We see this year it's a very special focus on the Sinbad movies. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, they they were great movies, and I love how this con focuses on these on the um, older movies like that look for us there at monsterama in atlanta georgia starlog magazine issue number 71 cover date june 1983 communications letters to starlog magazine crystal comments from Brian Seabrandt of Aurora, Colorado. Once again, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences fails to recognize the best movies in the sci-fi field. Only E.T., Blade Runner, Tron, Quest for Fire, and Poltergeist were given Oscar nominations. Star Trek II wasn't nominated for anything. Ricardo Montalban deserved a nomination for his role as Khan. The astounding effects of the Dark Crystal weren't even considered. The most upsetting category for me was Best Original Score. I thought the music to Conan the Barbarian by Basil, Poldoris, and Trevor Jones, the Dark Crystal score, should have won Oscars. I can go on and on about films passed over by the Academy. I've been saying this for years. I mean, all these award shows 
to me, it means nothing. Especially when I watched the Grammys in 1989 and Metallica didn't win Best Metal Band of the Year, I said, I'll never watch one of these shows again. It's trash. Yeah, it's like they're they're mostly for publicity, and you know the win the winners get more publicity, but there's still others that that are popular. I mean, usually the biggest money maker isn't the one that wins. I told you that story when I was a kid. I loved the Chariots of Fire theme by Vangelis. I told my dad, Dad, I really want to see this movie. I was like, My father's telling me you're not going to like this movie. I was like, Oh, I really want to see it. it yeah, yeah, I didn't like it. I mean, when I saw it in the movie theaters, it didn't win an award. And then when I saw that one won an award for Best Picture, I said, this Best Picture stuff is a bunch of nonsense. I don't get it. Yeah, that they also have, um, yeah, like the, what, what I would say, the boring movies that always get nominated. <laughs> and, and a lot of movies that, uh, that people have never heard of, too. Yeah. How Return of the Jedi didn't get Best Movie of 1983 is beyond me. Because that's the movie I was most excited about watching that year. But the fact of the matter is, these awards are not made for Starlog fans. Log Entries, Latest News in the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact Piranha Swims onto Video Cassette Warner Home Video recently announced that it's cutting the price of 22 motion pictures in its catalog to $39.98 suggested retail. Most titles affected sold well previously at list prices ranging from $54.95 to $74.95. Reprice titles of interest to Starlog readers are The Amityville Horror, Dress to Kill, Love at First Bite, Time After Time, and The Wolfen. Additionally, Warner is unleashing 1978's Piranha, which stars Bradford Dillman, Heather Menzies, and Kevin McCarthy at the deliciously low price of $39.98. All of the above titles are available in beta and VHS videocassette formats. Wow, a movie that's five years old, like Piranha, you could get for $40? What a deal. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show how insanely expensive videotapes were back then. Two titles of interest for Laserdisc users are Wizard of Oz and Forbidden Planet. These will retail for $25.95. Yeah, laser discs were slimming down by the time that video uh, VHS tapes were getting to be more popular. Well, I mean, that was that sounded like a good price for laser discs. Was a good price. I told you, I I knew someone that had a laser disc player. The hard part about it was you had to get up in the middle of the movie and flip the disc over because it only held like an hour on each side. What an annoyance! And they were big too, like like a. A 33 record. Exactly. Hello, this is Mike Jones. And Kylie Jones. And we are here once again. We are here to discuss the June 1983 issue of Starlog, which was a monumental magazine because it was featuring none other than what was at that time the final film of the Star Wars trilogy, Return of the Jedi, which would premiere in May of 1983 with the exact same date as the original Star Wars in 1977, May 25th. Some of the things we're going to cover today 
Carrie Fisher and her influence, uh, not just for this film, but beyond. And of course, how it was to see that film for the first time. For some of us, it was in the theater. For others of us, it was on VHS. And for the contemporary folks today, it's either been on DVD or in some streaming mode, perhaps even on some kind of uh, format other than those. So, without further ado, let's get underway. Our first question is to Kylie, and just really about Carrie and how she inspires uh, and inspired you. So, I watched this. This movie was my favorite. I was so very, very thrilled when I found out that there was another Star Wars movie. I, I They were all made by the time I was born, but... Um, this was so exciting to me that there was a third one, possibly because I was so sad about how the second one ended, and I don't like uh, hanging endings, and that's what it felt like to me as a kid, um, but more so because I just wanted more of the characters, and I am a definite uh, flora and fauna fan of sci-fi. I could not really get into all of the cool... Um, modes of transportation and the ships and the blasters and all that was my brother's area of interest. I wanted to see costumes, I wanted to see animals, and I wanted to see characters being snarky, and that was absolutely more of what I got. Um, Carrie Fisher herself was always just who I wanted to be. I know that sounds really silly, but she wasn't the Disney princess, she wasn't the she was damsel in distress to some extent, but she would never call herself that. <laughs> the facts stand that she kept getting bailed out by her friends, but she also did her own share of bailing out. And that, to me, was amazing. She's basically the only girl in a male cast, and they didn't make her the weird little tomboy. She was still feminine, which is funny because in this article she talks about how um, she's not even... She said, uh, there was some, there's a point where she was talking and she made some jokes about, hey, why don't we have a mall planet where I can go shopping with my girlfriends? Or why don't we have a kitchen scene or a laundry scene? And she laughs about how it's not, um, stereotypically female. But if you look at her character, I mean, shooting down guys with big egos and taking control of a scene, but also, you know, knowing when to hide behind Luke and Han and knowing when to, um, you know, take control or step behind the leader. That's, that's pretty innately female right there. Yeah, but it's also, you know, her uh, classic form of sarcasm, right, when she does these kinds of interviews, that she would say something like going to a mall planet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was, she was more or less making fun of her, but she, fun of the idea, but she did point out, like, she said none of it was stereotypical. Uh, there were no moments where Leia is stereotypically female. And that's funny because there aren't, but throughout the whole movie she is undoubtedly female she's shooting guns she's wearing uniforms she's doing this stuff she's hanging with the guys but at no point was she ever like like i said like that strange tomboy character she's always unquestionably a princess and that impressed upon me a lot when i was little because i thought she was gorgeous and wonderful and I, she still got to do all these cool things yeah uh, well, one of the things you can also uh, obviously 
discuss is the fact that she goes from being the un, the uh, bounty hunter undercover to then having to be forced to wear uh, what is now called, correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, hut, slayer, hut Slayer. Hut Slayer. Right, which we would have referred to as Slave Leia for many, many years, uh, but is now referred to as Hut Slayer. Then she is in her um, officer's uh, outfit prior to putting on the, the uh, camouflage smock, to which case she then ends up once again in a dress uh, that the Ewoks... Uh, provide for her and her hair is down and again uh you know the the the, you know female character in a classic sense with her hair braided and wearing the the dress and then once again back into her battle fatigues uh which is what we see her wrap up in uh ultimately with the battle until we get to the very very end with the ewok celebration so she actually has a lot of iterations throughout a huge amount of iterations but um again to the absolute pleasure of young me and old me. I mean, you're giving the girl several costume changes. And I love that. They don't make a big deal out of it. But it gives her a moment to go through every single possible version of herself. She's a warrior. She's a princess. She's vulnerable. She's a leader. Um, And that's just kind of without being too overt about it going through all of the different hats that she wears as a princess and as a rebel and as a friend and as an explorer. Um, But on a base level, like, hey, lots of outfits, and I love them. Yes, and what's curious about that is um, ultimately they did try to create a a toy line of 12-inch action figures uh, for all the characters, and they even had designs on perhaps creating outfits that had nothing to do with the movies, but something for them to dress in and out of. But ultimately, all that was shot down. It would have been curious with Lucas and his um, definite awareness on consumerism and selling items and the like, if he could have possibly ever created a uh, Leia line for uh, uh, young children to be able to play with and, and change her in and out of these outfits that could have sold a fortune uh, in the G.I. Joe or Barbie style of things. But ultimately, that never happened uh, for that in that case. But uh, be that as it may, what was it like to, to see it for the first time for you? Oh, my! I, I was so excited. I was probably, I don't know, my family turned it into a accidental tradition to watch it every um, Thanksgiving and Christmas, which was absolutely my favorite thing to do. I know that's silly, but we had It's a Wonderful Life, and we had Return of the Jedi, and we enjoyed both of them. But So in my brain, it's a Christmas holiday movie, so you've got that. But the idea of jumping back into that universe was amazing to me. And then the fact that you had new creatures and new um I don't know like new Leia like she she was no longer the I guess uh, not that she was ever demure or meek but this just gave her so many things like she's fighting again gold bikini not my favorite but also like she's fighting fully armored bad guys and knocking them up she blows up a skiff she is in the forest, driving a speeder bike. That was huge. Uh, <laughs> it was a huge scene to me. I remember my siblings and I playing speeder bikes on the 
uh, swings in the backyard. Um, but all of this stuff... Which, by the way, they did actually create such a thing. Uh, was actually, I think, I can't remember, I think it was sold by Sears, where they created a swing set, and you could actually swing back and forth on a speeder bike. Unfortunately, those sets are pretty hard to find now, but it would have been fun for that to have that as a kid. We would have killed for that, but... No, her imaginations did well enough, and um, but just all of these new. She's she's in the action, not that she ever wasn't, but that's what my takeaway was. And it gets wrapped up with a nice little bow at the end. And young me and old me loves closure. I'm a sucker for a good ending to a story, and that's exactly what it gave me. Um, it just gave you hope for all. Like not to sound corny, but hope for all of the storylines, all the characters. But also, um, uh, sort of a maturing of the characters as well. Yeah, and I I uh, have done an interview earlier regarding the same thing. But for me, I can remember the premiere day uh, vividly. I can remember me going to the theater. Uh, I can remember everything that that led up to that day, that that moment uh, on that day. I remember riding my bike that morning. I remember going and having. Uh, the old, the old hotcakes and sausage combination at McDonald's while sitting out at the playground, uh, which they don't have anymore, the old McDonald's play places, to going to the Galaxy 10 Theater in San Antonio where my cousin worked and myself and my brother and uh, two of my friends uh, who we had known forever in our neighborhood had, in fact, um, played many, many times over uh, in the backyard as those characters. And yet now we get to sit in virtually the middle of the theater, center seats, about six or seven rows up, and experience, again, what we didn't know at the time because we were too young to know, but was ultimately in the last episode. But we just knew that it was one more Star Wars. uh, And having been kids, truly, that were alive when the first one came out, uh, I was four years old uh, at that time. To being able to see each of these come out uh, every three years was uh, just an amazing moment. I'll never forget how vast it seemed, how big every scene seemed, and how awesome uh, the final moments were as uh, Lando destroys the Death Star and we see Luke redeem his father. Uh, bringing the hero's journey uh, fully around and completing the vision that uh, Lucas had uh, had seen as far back as the uh, late '60s and early '70s. Uh, is there anything else from the from the magazine in particular that you recall? Oh, from uh, Kylie? yeah, from, from Star- the magazine. Yeah. I was going to say one thing about the movie that mm-hmm. stuck with me as growing up in a classical music family, a family that um, you know, my brother played classical violin. We kept Vivaldi on most of the time to have another um, soundtrack in my uh, that I could listen to was amazing I um, actually the soundtrack to Return of the Jedi was one of the things that I um, gave my computer a virus with trying to get it from LimeWire but listening to it now I mean of course John Williams has the ability to transport and we all know that but listening to it now can also bring me right back to sitting at the foot of my parents' bed watching these this movie again, feeling like Christmas or Thanksgiving. But not a lot of soundtracks have done that. Even other John Williams soundtracks haven't done that 
for me. One of the things to note, too, for us when it comes to the influence, for, for Kylie, of course, uh, she cosplays uh, Carrie Fisher, uh, uh, obviously, as the Leia character uh, for Rebel Legion. And uh, she has four, is that correct, four costumes? You have the indoor. Technically, you have both indoors now yeah, because you have it with or without. Yeah. You have New Hope. You have Bespin, uh, which is the, the, yes, which is the flowing dress uh, gown. Uh, you have Hoth, but you also, too, have the uh, post-Bespin uh, outfit, the uh, oh, where yeah, she has, Bespin yeah, the, the Bespin escape, yeah. Uh, and myself, I have uh, multiple versions of Han Solo. So for the, for us, uh, it's definitely an opportunity to uh, become these characters for a little while. Uh, the the response you always get with parades or when we're visiting hospitals or we're at other events as Leia is always incredible. That, that children, boys and girls, want to um, to uh, take pictures with you or. Uh, you know, even just have you reach out and give them, a, you know, a high five or well, they, something like that is pretty awesome. The kids do, but then I can't tell you how many times another person, an older person my age or older that says, I love that you are dressed like her. I wanted to be her. I wanted to be her. You know, my usual answer is you can. You can. There are places. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. We thank again StarPod Log Podcast for inviting us uh, to host uh, this uh, this moment. Uh, it's always uh, incredible. If you do not listen, you must. Please like their page on Facebook. Please uh, join it. Follow uh, their uh, posts. They are incredible about not only uh, being very specific to StarBlog, but they drop some funny funny uh, memes that relate back to that uh, that period of the 70s and 80s, and uh, we always enjoy being able to see them out and about at all the cons here in the Nashville area as well as the southeast. I get angry just thinking about it. It makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. It hurts the user. It hurts his family. And it hurts his friends. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using. So remember, don't or else. It's Ewok Village. I must save my friends. Let's set. I'll get them. Dear me, what a close call. It's C-3PO, Lou Lowbray, and Ewok Village playset. Action figures, eat sold separately. You have to put it together. I'm Lowbray, the Ewok medicine man. Take me to your leader. Your throne, O oh Golden King, will celebrate with special stew, a barbecue. No celebration for me until my friends are free. Very well, Your Majesty. Ewok Village playset from Star Wars Return of the Jedi collection. Action figures sold separately. New from Kenner. The... The most extraordinary miniseries ever. A daring TV journalist struggling to uncover the startling truth behind the alien's visit to Earth. And a beautiful and brave young scientist fighting for the very survival of the human race. Together, they take you on a fantastic journey to meet the visitors. Prepare yourself for a television event that's out of this world. Prepare for V. Friday, the adventures of Doctor Who continue. What evil lurks in the vastness of the universe... Join us for the galactic drama of Doctor Who, Friday night at 11. Starlog Magazine, issue number 72, cover date July 1983. And this is a special 7th anniversary issue. 
communications, letters to Starlog magazine, an extraterrestrial missive. From Kathleen Kennedy in Burbank, California. Just a note to commend you on behalf of both Steven Spielberg and myself for the level of integrity used in your article, Starlog 69. Thank you. Editor's note, Kennedy co-produced E.T. Yeah, we know. Tell you what, she did a lot of good things back in the 80s. I give her credit. I could see why George Lucas had the right intentions in tapping to her talent because she knew movies of that era. Not a big fan of her now, but I have to say, that's pretty awesome that she was reading Starlog magazine back in the day. I remember seeing her name in the, in the credits for all those movies. Yeah, I mean, those are classics that, that we fell in love with. Star Wars fans strike back. The Star Wars fan club is gearing up for the excitement being generated by the release of Chapter 6 of the Star Wars saga, Return of the Jedi. Maureen Garrett, director of the fan club since 1981, has several new offerings in the works that she feels Star Wars fans will love. Well, this news article talks about jackets were being produced, posters that said Revenge of the Jedi sold out immediately through the fan club. In fact, at the time of this press, they were selling on the, as they were it, black market for $200 per poster. That's crazy when you think about it. $200 in 1983 money for Revenge of the Jedi posters? Yeah, so so the, the club was just making these and selling them? Yeah, and people just snatched them up. They were trying to work on holograms. They were making patches, and it shows a picture of the Revenge of the Jedi patch with Yoda on it. They were also planning on making more jackets because people like jackets of that time. The fan club has more than 100,000 members worldwide right now, and they expect to continue providing Star Wars fans with these and other services for years to come. Membership is expected to double by the end of this year alone. The Disney Channel debuts. On Monday, April 18th, the Disney Channel officially began supplying programs for cable TV nationwide. According to Disney Channel President James Jamiro, $40 million is being spent on original programming during the first year of operations. All programming will be exclusive on the Disney Channel and unduplicated by other pay services. I remember when the Disney Channel came out, and we were big Disney fans at the time. Unfortunately, our cable system wasn't able to get it, but one town over, I grew up in Hamden, one town over, North Haven, guess what? They had the Disney Channel. So if we went over someone's house that lived in North Haven, we were able to watch it there. Did you have the Disney Channel where you were living in South Georgia? I, I don't think I had, no, I didn't have it in my hometown, but I believe I did have it when I was in college at, at that at that small town that my first college was in, Mount Vernon, Georgia. So they did have it there. Same thing like Disney Plus, bragging about exclusive programs. Nothing's changed. Yeah, in well, 40 back years. Then, it was like it was just the Disney movies back then. Yeah, and that was a big deal to watch the Disney classics. You got to figure only wealthy people had VCRs in 1983. They still didn't come down in price for the average person. So the Disney Channel was pretty unique for the time. Yes. And they've had unique programming that geared towards parks and gave you news on the parks. 
it's it's amazing to look back at how the behemoth of Disney started this media empire to where it is today. This is Timothy Zahn, author of Star Wars Thrawn. Whenever I want to hear about Star Wars, I tune into StarPod Log, the greatest podcast in the galaxy. All right. Well, uh, hey, welcome, everybody um, who may be listening here. Uh, My name is Josh Phillips, um, sometimes known as Star Wars Joshua. um, And it's a pleasure to be here talking about the Star Log uh, article. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm Lee Ramsey, uh, sometimes uh, referred to as Red 2 on this blog. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, Starlog interview with Mark Hamill, uh, and it's the article entitled Farewell, Luke Skywalker. A young actor bids uh, adieu to friends, enemies, and Darth Vader as he enters his final battle as a Star Warrior. Um, so let's take it away, Lee. Spoke briefly. I, th- I think one of the things that stood out to me in this article is that uh, Mark Hamill really didn't pull punches with some, some stuff that, uh, you know, he, he, he flat out said some things like his, his, his affinity for the director. Uh, you know, he, he mentioned that he preferred Richard uh, much more than Kirshner, which is not only surprising to me that he said it, uh, but just the fact that he put it in print was pretty bold. No, I agree, especially at that time, right? It's not like it's, we don't have 20 years passing and then you decide to talk about it. It's, you know, pretty immediate. Um, so I agree. Um, but maybe that's a little bit more like Hollywood then. I don't know. I mean, nowadays you say something like that and it feels like you might get blacklisted or something. But, um, you know, then maybe that was OK. Maybe it was, you know, just preference. Yeah, a little bit more of what was uh, acceptable at the moment, maybe. And uh, it, it, it was interesting how some of the things that he said, uh, it really makes it look like he did not enjoy creating Empire Strikes Back, uh, but did yeah, enjoy actually, the experience much more at the turn of the Jedi. Yeah, I think that was one of my big takeaways that even though the article is about Return of the Jedi, um, it, he seemed to say more about Empire um, kind of in the negative, right? That he said he was being thrown around. He's not a stunt man, but he felt like he had to do all these stunts and he said he felt exhausted. And um, just thinking about Empire, um, I mean, you know, filming in the Arctic, filming, you know, all sorts of new scenes. Um, it was definitely a different experience for him. Yeah, it almost sounds like reading the article, like a like he's his ex girlfriend that he's he's trying to compare Return of the Jedi to, uh, which you know for me Return of the Jedi is my favorite. So hearing some of those mine too, I didn't know that. So okay, mine is. I know a lot of people these days talk about Empire as being their favorites, um, but uh, honestly, Return of the Jedi has always been my favorite, probably because it's the only one I actually remember seeing in the theater. Um, so I was, I don't know, probably about, I think I was six. So that's the one I actually remember. Same, same. And, and it's just the action's different. It's a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, you know, Empire's got those heavy moments, but I love Return of the Jedi. I also thought it was interesting where he brings out the uh, Darth Vader. Like he he took some shots at David Prowse a little bit. He did, he did. He was saying he, uh, what was that? Like he was hoping that, um, there would be some promo shots between him and uh, Bob Anderson, uh, who actually did all the uh, lightsaber work for David Prowse. And uh, what did he say? Something about they actually brought David Prowse into the studio just to take photos as if he was the one fighting behind the scenes. Um, and apparently Mark thought that was a little bit of dishonesty. Yeah, yeah. And even mentioned that, like, every time they were shooting, he was at some convention, which, like, yes, it's, yes. little digs, little digs. 
which is kind of what I've heard through the grapevine that David Prowse did quite a few appearances. Um, even, I mean, isn't that, there's a little bit of rub. Am I, am I wrong there that he was doing all these different appearances even back then without really Lucasfilm's approval? Is that right? Yeah. And I think, uh, there's, there's more to that story. And I, I think, didn't he give out the seat, like one of the major secrets and yes. ended up on Lucas's, uh, uh, no, no list, I guess. Right. Like, yes, I, I've heard that, that, yeah. Prowls had a big problem with spoiling a lot of things so that they didn't tell him or they told him wrong scenes and endings and parts. Um, so yes, you're right on there. I, I know that was a fact. <laughs> and you know what? Yeah. Actually, Mark talked about that. He said that, and I had not heard that. I'll be honest. I've never, I never read this article until, um, you know, recently. And, uh, Mark said that there were like three big alternate pieces in the script when they got it. Um, and, uh, that, you know, once they got on set, I guess they, whatever, you know, they, they actually said what was actually happening and what was real. Um, so that was, I had not heard that. Yeah, I hadn't either. Uh, makes sense though, if, if, if he was already upset for what happened and then, uh, trying to confirm it. And then with the blue harvest sort of goes along with it, right? Like all the yes. misdirections. Okay. So one of the things that I thought was cool that I thought for just a brief minute, I was reading like a modern article because Mark is talking about, how there were days that went by days maybe even said months that he was the only actor the live actor that was on the call list and all he did was you know stand in front of you know puppets and i guess green screens or different type maybe they weren't green then but you know different types of screens and so i thought to myself you know that made me think a lot about what i've heard um the cast of the prequels would always say Episode mm. one, two, and three, they said that we just stood in big giant rooms, you know, and there was nothing there. Um, and so it sounded like Mark said that was a hard, um, you know, a hard few months for him also, because there's no one to act with. Uh, yeah. I'd like, you know, it's, it's similar to like performing. I, I've heard that people that perform on stage have trouble sometimes going to the screen for that. And I imagine in this situation, uh, not having any actors to play off of makes that even, uh, tenfold uh, more difficult for sure yeah totally agree with that totally agree um okay so what else to this article I, I guess one of my questions for you is what do you remember reading that maybe you didn't know or maybe shed some new light on something that you already knew uh i guess really that whole darth vader uh drama with the bob anderson uh, i didn't know uh, i always assumed that most of that was david prowse and didn't realize there was a whole another actor that that carried that much of the weight. Yeah, I agree. I, I, that that interaction. Well, I, you started it off by saying it that Mark Hamill definitely didn't hold any punches in this article. Like he kind of, let's be honest, he dissed a little bit on the directors. He dissed a little bit of it on uh, David Prowse. Um, you know, he, he yeah, it was he was very vulnerable. And maybe at this point, knowing it was the last one, that's what I was thinking. Uh, knowing this is <laughs> the last. Point. <laughs> Maybe he was like, hey, I'm moving on in my career. It's time for me to be okay to say what I want. And, you know, and, and I guess, too, I don't know if you follow uh, him today, but he's pretty outspoken. And it, and it seems like some of that's uh, yeah. carried with him. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very funny because he is. He's extremely outspoken, I know, on social media. And and he was pretty outspoken after um, what's the um, of the um, the. Episode 10, right? When episode 10 came out, 
um, what is that? The Last Jedi. Uh, yeah. He was not real thrilled about his role, and he still talks about that. That he does not think that that movie de- depicted Luke and his strengths and character correctly. And I and I'm just going to go on record and say I kind of agree. And I I try really hard to like everything. Like there's very little that I that I'll complain about and not find something I can't enjoy. Uh, that that one didn't have much. I didn't like that one. It's, you know, I sort of agree with Mark and everybody else that grew up with Star Wars. I do agree. And you know what? This is off topic of this article, but um, I am a huge fan of The Force Awakens. So I'm also going to go on record and say Force Awakens is one of my top. I'm gonna, I am I might say two. I think Return of the Jedi is my favorite of all nine. And Force Awakens, I'm going to say, actually, is my number two of all nine. Oh, wow. I loved it. I loved it. Um, so there you go. On record, anybody who's listening can disagree <laughs> with me. Um, but I... I loved it. I actually love some of the characters, the ideas, and just would have liked to seen them play out a little bit different. So, yeah, Poe to me was awesome. After Force, you know, I was excited about that character and just didn't go in the direction I was hoping. But yeah, no, I agree. I think that you know, ultimately, I thought the new characters that were brought into the series blended very well with Harrison Ford. You know what I mean, and the droids. And I really wanted them to blend with Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, but I don't know if that, you know, starting in episode 10 and 11, um, I don't know if we quite got there. You know, or not 10 and 11, what am I saying? I'm sorry, what what am I on? <laughs> We're not on 11. <laughs> sorry, number seven, I'm sorry. So Force Awakens was seven. That's that's one of my favorites. So that episode eight was the one that um, was uh, the questionable one for Mark Hamill. So... Yeah. Um, well, okay. So here's, here's something that I thought was cool about the article. Um, I would say that Hamill referenced somebody that I did not know who he was talking about. So I actually looked this up and he, there's this quote, it's really in the first couple that he says that, uh, basically, um, you know, the Star Wars series and, uh, Jedi, um, doesn't have too different of a traditional ending. He says something like it's very traditional storytelling. It's not meant to have an O. Henry type twist. So I did not know what he meant when he said O. Henry. Um, so I'd encourage our listeners here to um, look up what that is. But I guess he's an author, short story author that has some cool twists in his short stories. Um, so definitely look up. Who and, that you, is. and you mentioned you mentioned one briefly, right? About uh, explain that again, like the yeah, yeah. It's so I guess one of his famous twists um, is um, it's called the Gift of the Magi in which a a husband and a wife love each other so much that they want to give everything to get like a great, I think it's a Christmas present um, for each other. So the husband sells his prize watch in order to buy his wife a set of beautiful uh, combs and brushes. And the wife sells her hair. She cuts her hair and sells her hair in order to buy the husband uh, a gold chain for his watch. So they both have given their prizes up for their spouses. And uh, I don't know that, that it's that almost like a pe- twist. Yeah. That type of twist uh, is, I guess what O Henry is known for. And anyway, Hamill says star Wars doesn't have that twist, but I don't know. I kind of disagree if that's <laughs> indeed what he meant, what he means, because the twist at the end of return of the Jedi, I think is probably the greatest of the entire series, even more than the Luke, I am your father, you know, twist. Um, that Vader himself 
kind of is redeemed, you know, if and I did not see it coming. If you haven't done it, uh, the novelization, the, the section where they lift Darth Vader's helmet, I can't read that without tearing up. It is so beautiful. It's amazing. Some of the, some of my favorite things to read, just that one moment, that redemption I'm gonna moment. I'm going to read it now. Takes the helmet off. I'm going to go read it. But the way that he uh, talks about what he sees in Luke and how the reflection of who he is, even after all the, the stuff, it, it's, it's really good. Really good. Yeah. No, I agree. And I'll tell you what, I think that someone who uh, doesn't get the, maybe doesn't get the the praise that he deserves is Sebastian Shaw mm. uh, playing Vader, you know, in that scene, because he, I mean, that's a great scene. That's an emotional scene. And you're right, man. I need to, I need to go rewatch that a few times and read it. <laughs> And I'll tear up. I, I'm I'm a crier. I'll also go on record and say that, guys. I I'm a crier. I'm okay to admit it. Well, uh, it, it's it's funny that those. I know we've lost a few of our heroes recently, uh, mm-hmm. and and seeing uh, Carrie on screen, I think after the fact was 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 tough to watch as well. I won't That's get true. into if I teared up or not. But <laughs> That's right. That's right. We can all take guesses. All right. Well, hey, let's uh. Let's sign off here on something. And I thought that this was a cool end to sign off as I guess Hamill did at the end of the article. Um, he says that uh, his, his last lines were, um, uh, when you get right down to it, Return of the Jedi is only a movie. It's not the tablets from the mountain. And I love that referencing, you know, the Ten Commandments, because what he's referencing earlier is some fans are so crazy about Star Wars that, you know, they, they take it as gospel and funny because here we are 40 years later and he's, he's <laughs> almost, he's almost saying, whoa, guys, like this is just a movie. And 40 years later, we're talking about it on a blog about an interview that took place 40 years ago. And, uh, and yet Hamill has, you know, embraced it. So I, I'd love to talk to him about that line. Like, what does he think about the fandom now? Yeah, and and I think uh, as we sign off, uh, there's a little bit in that article too where he talks about them having the financial ability to start picking roles, uh, and I think that's really cool uh, to put that in context as well. Hello, I'm Robert Lamb, a filmation writer and storyboard artist. Worked on He-Man announces the universe, Shira, Princess of Power, Brave Star, and many others. Whenever I want to hear about animation i turn on star pod log all right let's talk about the tv shows of 1983 were you watching a lot of tv in 1983 yeah i was watching a lot still watching a ton of reruns i mean i would come home from school i watch gilligan's island i watch brady bunch i watch i love lucy i mean it just kept going on and on. But after school, then around dinner time, it would be Batman, and then Star Trek, and then late at night, it would be Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So, even though there were a lot of new shows in 83, were you one of the rerun kids that would just love watching reruns of classic shows? Especially black and whites? Yeah, I watched reruns every day when I came home from school. I mean, it, yeah, before the, the primetime shows, because primetime was the regular, that was the new shows. So before that, I watched a lot of reruns. Yep, same thing, same thing. I love Gomer Pyle, USMC. Yeah, I was a big Gomer Pyle fan. All right, I'm going to tell you this. I got a bad report card one time in 1983. My father came home. He looked at the report card, and I was sitting there watching Gomer Pyle. He said, turn the TV off. I said, but Dad, Gomer Pyle's on. He goes, we got to talk about this report card. I said, 
can we just wait to the end of Gomer Pyle? He lost his mind. He slammed that TV off. He couldn't believe that he was being shut down by me wanting to finish watching Gomer Pyle. <laughs> I knew I was just trying to delay the inevitable. I knew that I was going to have the world come down on me. So I just said, well, let me just enjoy Gomer Pyle before it, it, it just rains down hell. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's parents for you. <laughs> 1983 had... Quite a few new things coming out, uh, Saturday morning cartoons, as well as primetime shows. The big difference is, because of Ronald Reagan, he said, let the free market reign. New cartoons, especially tie-ins with toys, were not allowed to be presented previous to him becoming president because it was just considered, like, not fair. You shouldn't be advertising to kids after school. But guess what? No matter what. Kids are going to want toys whether there's a cartoon associated with it or not. So this was a new era of cartoons. Things like He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. These are being aired at a time, not just Saturday mornings, but it would be throughout the week on a daily basis. Kids are just begging their parents for more toys based on these shows. So we could say that, that 1983 was a pivotal year because of that. Because restrictions are being lifted. It's also a year, we could say, Mr. T was a hugely popular personality. Not only did he have a cartoon show, but he was one of the stars of the A-Team. The A-Team was one of my shows that I watched every week. And yeah, I remember Mr. T. He was, I mean, he was cool. You know, he was he was this mean guy. You, th- you <laughs> thought of him as mean, but then he was also nice when he needed to be. And And when he had that cartoon on Saturday mornings, I mean... Yeah, he was like, he was the, the, like the hero of the show. He was the guy that was the nice guy that ran this gymnastics troupe. And, and really not the same personality that he was on the A team. But I guess I never really thought about it back then. <laughs> I remember going to the North Haven Fair and they had these, what they call them, roach clips. But they were essentially like these little clips with a bunch of feathers on them. And easy to win a prize. You like hit a balloon with a dart and you, you get one of these roach clips. And I remember my brother painfully putting them on his ears to pretend he's Mr. T. Mr. <laughs> T had he had earrings, and then he clipped the roach clips on his earrings, whereas John was just clipping them on his earlobes, like, ah, trying to be like Mr. T. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mr. T wore all that uh, that jewelry, too, all, all the, the gold chains around his neck and everything. He doesn't wear that anymore. Right, yeah, he doesn't. He's doesn't. different now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said after... The floods in New Orleans, he felt like it bothered his conscience, saying, like, how in the world could people have nothing? And I'm flaunting this enormous amount of wealth. Amazing how people change. Rubik, The Amazing Cube, was another Saturday morning show that debuted in 1983. Following the success of the Rubik's Cube craze, I will say I did watch, and it was a dumb show. Also, Saturday morning Supercade. It was... Pivoting off of all the arcade games that were popular at the time. Frogger, Kangaroo, you name it. They tried to make some kind of Saturday morning show out of it. And as we discussed last episode, what happened in the early 80s? The Satanic Panic was all the rage. Of course, Dungeons & Dragons cartoon on Saturday mornings did not help it at all. And the cartoon really didn't have anything to do with the game because it was about kids lost in a carnival ride and trying to get back home. But it did have elements that that would be the characters that you potentially could play in D&D. 
What other shows did you like from 83? Star Search was a great show. That, that was, was one of the, you did watch it? Describe <laughs> what Star Search was. Um, it was, um, it was a competition show. And this one, it was not on during primetime. It was, I think it was a syndicated show, apparently. I watched some episodes of it. And it had, like, yeah. isn't it kind of like American Idol? Would you say it was like the modern counterpart to American Idol? Uh, yeah, maybe. Except they had, they had different things besides singers. There was the, yeah, the, the singers, the dancers, actors, and models. So it was all of that. And a lot of the people on that show became celebrities back then too. And it was hosted by Ed McMahon. Ed McMahon, because the Johnny Carson show was popular during that time. Wait, I don't remember anybody being a celebrity off of that. Who became a celebrity? The, the model, uh, that was in Star Trek V started on that show because she was the winner, the model. Cynthia Gow. Really? That's amazing. Yes. And, and one of the dancers, Reagan, became one of the solid gold dancers. Oh, there's a connection there. I did not realize that. Very interesting. So, and yeah, some people who, some people were on the show that later became famous. So, um, Star Search also had like other people who, who became celebrities. Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Justin Timberlake, even though he went under a different name back then. So yeah, a lot of people who who got started on that show because it was just you know it was it was a talent show for these people. So why not you know be on it? And and it was like when you look at the Britney Spears, she was just a little girl then. Like some she of these was, people were child, yeah. they they were children going on Star Search because it was total variety. It wasn't segmented. It it, it wasn't. They didn't have a certain age range like they do with modern shows. Yeah, they could have kids. Well, I think the I think Star Search started doing like Star Search Kids or something because it, you know it became so popular that they expanded. That's amazing. I never realized that until doing research for this segment. Okay, talking about kids, Gary Coleman set the standard, and of course, there he opened the door. What show debuted in 1983? Webster. My brother was a Webster fan. He watched all these sitcoms. Well, yeah, they were great shows. <laughs> I mean, I watched a lot of sitcoms. So, yeah, and Webster was another one, like Different Strokes. He was he was adopted by a white couple. It was. It was like, it, it, it kind of was like the uh, Fred Sanford was competition to All in the Family. Webster, I viewed as competition to Different Strokes. Were you a fan of Mama's Family? Uh, you know, I didn't watch it as much. when I know, I know it started like that... That began from the Carol Burnett show. Total spinoff of Carol Burnett. Yes, yes. Whereas, watch, I, we watched the Carol Burnett show all the time. I, I know that was on Friday nights because I was at my grandfather's watching it. We'd all sit in the TV room, watch Carol Burnett show together. And there were some skits on there about, with Vicki Lawrence in it. And she does, Vicki Lawrence now does the convention scene in her mama getup. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it is, especially considering how old she is now. <laughs> But, well, yeah, now, like, she wouldn't really have to wear the wig anymore. She's <laughs> got the gray hair. Being a Charlie's Angels fan, were you a fan of Scarecrow and Mrs. King? No, that show I didn't watch. I bypassed it. We should watch that now with Bruce Boxleitner. Exactly. Kate Jackson, she really did do very well with Charlie's Angels. So I never watched this. I watched Charlie's Angels, but this didn't interest me. But now, as an adult, it's on my radar. Were you a WizKids fan? No. I watched just a little bit of it. It was about kids. You gotta figure, I had the kid that played Albert in Little House on the Prairie. I was a Little House fan. I thought Little House was fantastic. And it was a trendy show because it was about kids who solved 
mysteries with the use of computers. And this was the computer era. WWF All-American Wrestling, of course we watched that. That's a show that debuted 1983. Reading Rainbow with LeVar Burton. I was too old to be watching something like this, but I think it's impressive that it had a long run and it encouraged quite a few kids to pick up books. Yeah, I didn't watch it back then, and I didn't know about LeVar Burton back then. So, But it it is neat. It's such a popular show, and it's actually been around for so long. I was a fan, though, of Mr. Wizard's World because I was very interested in science. And Mr. Wizard essentially showed you how to take household items, and he was kind of like the MacGyver. He'd show you how to do things, everything short except for blowing things up, which was a disappointment. The funny thing is, now, like I said... Love Twilight Zone, loved Alfred Hitchcock Presents. There were two shows that were kind of, sort of, in that vein that came out in 1983. The Hitchhiker, which was on HBO. I would watch that with my father because he liked that that type of storytelling. There was a short-lived series, but boy, was it exciting. Also, on regular TV was Tales from the Dark Side, a very creepy show. That was like the horror version of Twilight Zone. Loved Tales from the Dark Side. And it came on late at night, so and that was something that because my mother would stay up late with us and watch Tales from the Dark Side. Manimal also debuted in 1983, and it ended in 1983. This was a very short-lived show. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I actually thought it was good. And <laughs> <laughs> I well, noticed the pattern is anything that's just so strange, so bizarre, you like it. Well, it, okay, for one thing, it had Melody Anderson yes. that I knew from Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I just liked it. And you like the I, and premise? I also, a guy turning into an animal? It was it was something, yeah, it was different. But I heard the show became a hit in Europe. But it was still just a few episodes. But, but they liked it over there. Fraggle Rock, the eponymous puppet-based show, Jim Henson production, premiered on HBO. You know, a lot of people don't know modern days what HBO stands for. Home box office. Yeah, because that's what they played. It was a box office. You you watch movies on HBO. It's not like that now. That's why they've they've dropped calling it home box office. It's a lot of unique programming and documentaries along with some movies. But go figure. Uh, Black Adder, very popular show over in the UK. I love it. People know the actor more so for. Mr. Bean, Tara Hawks, Jerry Anderson show, debuted in 1983. And this was the era of very special episodes, such as a very special episode of Mr. Hooper dying on Sesame Street, teaching kids how to deal with death. Big Bird was depressed over that. And also in 1983, a very special episode of Different Strokes regarding... The Bicycle Man. Do you remember that episode? Yeah. I, Awkward. I mean, they, if you watch it as an adult, you're like, holy cow, this is so uncomfortable. Well, so they did They did it back then, and it was it was good watching it back then. You like know, PSAs. To, yeah, to make a statement, yes. Also, the Nashville Network debuted in 1983, cable television. And we can't forget one of the most memorable series of the year, V. Boy, our whole family watched V. I mean, we would crowd around the TV set. It was, it was a true experience watching that when it came out. Like it was an event. 
It was so cool because it was, you know, it's this new primetime show and it, it was, it was hyped. I mean, it actually got some publicity. They really hyped it up. And it was so cool to see this, like, uh, you know, a sci-fi show that was on and everybody seemed to watch it. And I loved the, the villains. Um, Diana, Diana was the best. Oh man, she sure was. And if you remember all the hype around it was there are friends. It was, you just see a poster with a V on it. Like a spray-painted V, letter V. And I remember at the time, because I played soccer as a kid, and there was this kid in my class that was really good at soccer named Steve. And I wrote, we had this little notebook. I wrote that V, like spray paint symbol. I wrote V. And I wrote the V symbol with those little, kind of like Morse code dots. I sketched it while I was watching the show. and, And so I brought it to school. And then we had the conversation. I said, Stands for victory. What did did you what did you think the V stood for? I, I mean, I watched the show to to see, and they did say it stands for victory. Okay, he he said no, it doesn't stand for victory. Victory is the soccer movie, and I said the same thing <laughs> you did. I said, well, it still stands for victory. He's like, no, it stands for visitors. And that's another thing people said. Yeah, it could. I was like, I couldn't argue, and I'm like, well, it could, but why would people spray paint a V for visitors over their posters? Right, so it, it, I mean, I think it, they kind of used it on the show to stand for both, even though the show said it stood for victory, though. That, that show was so exciting, and the idea of the cliffhanger ending, the idea of they looked like us, but they were different from us. Early Robert England, before he became known as Freddy, I mean, everything about this show was exciting. It was one of those things like you had to be there to experience it. Because it was an event. Didn't know anybody had a VCR. If, if you missed an episode, you were doomed when you came to school the next day because everybody was talking about it. People who didn't even like sci-fi were talking about V. So, so the, the visitors were, like you said, they, they look like us. You think they're like us at first, and then it turns out they're not. I mean, that was one of the exciting parts, actually getting to see what, what they what they look like underneath when, when it's revealed. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that they came, they came as our friends, like... Like they're pretending to be our friends, but when you're watching it, you you know something is up. I mean, even as a kid, you're like, yeah, something's going on here. I remember my father's reaction the first time a mouse was put down the V's throat. Yeah. Him going, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) We're sci-fi fans. We're like, well, we know where this is going to serve mankind. I've seen that Twilight Zone episode. (laughs) (laughs) Shows that ended in 1983, Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, that that was a good show, but you could tell it, it was time for it to end. I mean, uh, but by the last season, it only had Laverne, didn't even have Shirley. Silly. I mean, Chips. Yeah, another good show had Michael Dorn on it. Oh yeah, that's the first thing people <laughs> think of when they think of Chips, Michael Dorn, the greatest American hero. I, I didn't watch that much. Now you watched. Yeah, he had that curly one. hair, so yeah, didn't watch that too much. The Incredible Hulk. Oh, that was a great show. Incredible show. Yeah, sorry to see that one end. Yeah. We thought it would be the end, but was it really? Little House on the Prairie? They stopped calling it Little House and then restarted with Little House A New Beginning. Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. I loved that show. Yeah, one of those great Saturday morning shows. It was incredible. I, I loved it so much. Firestar was created just for the show, and then they incorporated her into the actual comic book Marvel Universe. Yeah, big fans. Taxi? They didn't watch that. Now, I know you watched it. 
a love taxi, had a huge crush on Elaine. But a year later, we'd be seeing Jim Ignatowski as a Klingon in Star Trek Three, And MASH ended. It was, at that time, the most watched series finale ever in television history. Reportedly so much so that people did not even want to leave the television for the commercial breaks and the plumbing systems in New York City backed up because thousands upon thousands of toilets all flushed at the same time when the show was over. Isn't that crazy? It is. I think that show was on like 14 seasons, one of the one of the longest running shows too back then. To me, me and my brother, we'd hear that theme song late at night. We're like, okay, time to turn TV off. Yeah, I was never into it either. And we cannot forget. We talked about shows that debuted, shows that ended. But here's the big news in 1983. Doctor Who would celebrate 20 years on the air. There's no such thing as a science fiction show lasting 20 years. Yeah, Doctor Who had, had such a big following. And, it, I mean, it and it really was a good show, too. And and I think changing the actors, you know, the lead actor, is really one of the things that helped the show. I mean, they, they it kept it fresh and always brought in a new audience every time they changed. Yeah, that in itself was an interesting concept. It happened by mistake. It wasn't in the script that the Doctor would regenerate. But when William Hartnell was no longer able to, for health reasons, to continue being the Doctor. They worked something out that, oh, well, the Doctor doesn't really die. He just changes into another form. How ingenious is that? And as of this recording, we're recording it during the 60th anniversary. So to look back and and think about the legacy of Doctor Who, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, amazing year for television, 1983. Gathering together from across the universe, or at least portions of the country, three men come together to form a triangle of idiocy. In this corner, Lou Melagrana. Do you want an Atlas body in seven days? Then my advice, join the Meagle-like Facebook group. Max Overnighter, down to you. I, I am Max Overnighter, contributor to the Meagle-like Facebook group, and I was also the first one on my block to order sea monkeys. My friends were not impressed. How about you, Rich? I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant, and you can find me at Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube. I own a pair of X-ray spectacles. I can see through time and space itself, beyond the beginning of time, the eye that sees all. (gasps) He's not wearing any underwear. Since this is an anniversary issue, as the previous issues had, the last pages are going to be dedicated to anniversary greetings from the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and beyond. There are essentially, essentially little notes from celebrities and creators congratulating this anniversary edition of Starlog Magazine. Matt Irvine, the visual effects designer of Doctor Who and Blake Seven, writes, Happy birthday to Starlog. Seven is my lucky number two. Keep up the good work. Stan Lee, the creator of the Marvel Comics Universe, writes, Congratulations, Starloggers. The first seven years are the hardest. Spidey joins me in a joyful web wiggle, wishing you all the best for the next seven. And the Hulk wants me to convey to you his most sincere and heartfelt arg, Excelsior. (laughs) (laughs) Vincent Price Actor in The House of Wax, The Raven, and House of Long Shadows writes, 
Greetings to Starlog Press. Yeah, he just dialed that one in. <laughs> <laughs> There's no effort on his part. June Lockhart, actress in Lost in Space, Strange Invaders, and Lassie, writes, Good luck and congratulations to Starlog's seventh. Well, see, the thing is, I mean... Carolyn Monroe, who we will be seeing at Monsterama. We're going to ask her about this. We're going to get the details <laughs> of how she got into into this letter writing. She's the actress in Star Crash, Last Horror Film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Here's wishing you a very happy 7th anniversary and much continued success for the future. Also a big hello and thank you from me to all the staff, writers, and, most importantly, readers of Starlog. William Stout, illustrator for Dinosaurs, Dinosaur Tales, Lord of the Rings movie poster. He's the storyboard artist for Conan the Barbarian. Notice what he conveys. Congratulations to you on your 7th anniversary for maintaining your high standards of quality. Starlog has consistently covered a huge diversity of subject matter with great thought, courage, and graphic excellence. Always interesting, never static. I am looking forward to your 70th anniversary. Well, guess what? His his dreams are shattered. Yeah. <laughs> Who would ever think that magazines would be a dinosaur? Buster Crab, the original Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, and Tarzan. He was in Tarzan the Fearless, writes, Congratulations on a fine year. Keep up the good work. Didn't you love it when he showed up in Buck Rogers in the 25th century? I loved it, yeah. Of course, I didn't know who he was until, I, I think it was like Starlog where I read I mean, about it. I knew it just yeah. as my grandfather. My grandfather was like, hey kids, that's Buster Crab. That's, that's the real Buck Rogers right there. <laughs> <laughs> Forrest J. Ackerman, founder of Famous Monsters of Filmland. I remember way back when you celebrated your seventh anniversary. You're still the star log in my forest. That doesn't even make any sense. Because this is the seventh anniversary. Did he mean to write second anniversary? Yeah, maybe he did. I, yeah. I don't know. It's <laughs> old Forey, though. You never know. It's maybe one of his inside jokes. Jerry Anderson and Christopher Burr, producers of Terrorhawks. Congratulations and best wishes from one hell of a team to another. Terra Hawks are 1010. SIG. David Prowse. We noticed that David Prowse consistently leaves a message on, on these anniversary issues. We know him as Darth Vader. Congratulations on your seventh anniversary and may you have many, many more to come. The standard of your magazine still continues to be the highest. It's the most up-to-date, informative, and easily readable magazine of its type in the world. The best $2.95 anywhere. I agree. And now for something completely different. And as always, we are going to conclude this episode by discussing one of the advertisements found in Starlog magazine. This ad holds a place in my heart. Because my brother especially loved this ad. We would read this together over and over and over again. Because it was not only featured in Starlog, but it was also featured in Fangoria. Because we were readers of both. It's called The Blood Boutique. It's a full page ad. It shows a guy with a knocked out tooth. What it looks to be a knocked out tooth. A bunch of products that looks to be like makeup products and it says this could be you send us your black and white makeup photo and list the materials used if we print it you will win a coupon 
worth 40% discount on your next Blood Boutique order. What exactly is the Blood Boutique? Amateur filmmakers, makeup beginners, and Halloweeners have all asked us the same question, but where do I get it? Professional quality makeup supplies can be purchased at your local drugstore, but there are certain specialty items that can be hard to find. The Blood Boutique is designed to solve that particular problem. We hope to present some basic information on the use of these materials in a future issue of Fangoria. Current and back issues of Cinemagic also offer detailed makeup information, as does the theater arts section of your local library. We welcome your comments and suggestions for the positive improvement of this service. And I'm telling you, we read that and we went, know what we're going to do? We're going to go to the library. And sure enough, there were some books at the Hamden Memorial Library. We go to that library and it was an awesome library. They had books about horror makeup. And we took them out. And this is an advertisement, full-page advertisement of all kinds of things that you could do just for the fun of making up things. We weren't making films. We just like putting on this crazy makeup. And and that's the thing. I can't remember if we ordered it from the Blood Boutique or we got them from Nick's Novelties because we had this novelty store and this costume and makeup store near us called Nick's Novelties. And believe it or not, we worked there for a little while in, in the summer. We were like 12 years old. I'm not kidding. They gave us $1 an hour. It was total slave labor. <laughs> But we took that dollar an hour, and we had fun with it, and kept kids busy. Parents would just give us work to do, keep us busy. Minimum wage, less than minimum wage, it's okay, kept us out of trouble. And some of the things in there, absolutely loved, such as nose putty. What is nose putty? Harder consistency than Dermawax can be combined with DW to any consistency between the two. And what, per stick, $3.25. Yeah. You can make your nose bigger. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the items. Fake blood. That was a big, that was a, that was a fun game in our household, especially with the blood capsules. When we discovered these, this was a game changer. What are blood capsules? These gelatin capsules contain a special blood powder. Bite into them. They mix with saliva to produce plenty of you know what. They taste good too. <laughs> Or I'm going to tell you the blood capsule story. So me and my brother, we were at my grandfather's house. We had this idea. We're going to get into a fight. A really, really, because we used to wrestle constantly. But we really just said, we're going to put these blood caps. John said, I'm going to put these blood capsules in and watch this. Watch Pop go nuts. And you know what I did? I punched him in the face. And he started screaming. And started, because it takes a moment for the saliva to mix in with those blood capsules. And when it starts mixing in, boy, that blood starts pouring out. And my grandfather was not amused. He took John's head. He, like, twisted his neck around, put it upside down in the sink. And you know he was mad because he was just throwing everything. And I'm like, God damn it, Jesus Christ, what the hell's wrong with you kids? Well, what do you, did he know it was a capsule? or did No, he... he thought it was real. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... Uh, these are all great things that, that kids could have in their arsenal for pranks and tricks around the household. Okay. And all of the, so all the makeup stuff really sounds like it would appeal more to boys. I wouldn't have been interested in that. <laughs> okay. Here's another thing. You wouldn't want makeup pencils in hard to find colors. 
such as gash red, vein blue, jaundiced yellow. That doesn't sound interesting to you? No, I can, I mean, if I wanted makeup, I'd get it in the regular colors. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.